Hello and welcome to another episode of Journey to the Rise. I'm your host, Lucretia. In today's episode, we talk with Kristen Luna, a travel writer who shares with us her journey that took her from news reporting, working for People magazine, and now she travels all over the U.S. and various countries writing travel stories. Kristen has also started a nonprofit helping artists in small towns enhance their spaces with art. This not only gives an artist an outlet to create, it helps towns and cities increase their tourism. For someone who is so accomplished in her writing career, she's very humble and down to earth. Let's not wait any longer to get into this conversation. Please welcome my guest, Kristen Luna. Today we are talking with a woman who comes across as never being afraid of going after what she wants. She shares her experience in a very authentic like authentic way whether she's running down endless hallways at an airport or the challenges that come with home restoration and repair i don't think there's anything she can't do and if there is she's incredibly uh, resourceful to figure it out and she's always looking graceful and confident kristen thank you so much for being here with us today thank you for having me and i think my mom will laugh if she hears this and that knows that you described me as graceful because (laughs) i'm actually like clumsy and always injuring myself but I'll I'll take it I'll take it excellent so where did you where did you grow up so I grew up in Tullahoma Tennessee which is a town about an hour south of Nashville very kind of rural community but great place for like being a kid because we had great schools and excellent sports programs so I was always on the road as a child uh, competing in different sports. So really my adulthood traveling isn't that different. I'm just, you know, no longer staying five people deep in a Hampton Inn in like rural Alabama. Instead, I'm, you know, staying five people deep in an Airbnb in, I don't know, rural California. So (laughs) my life is very parallel to the childhood I led and I am back living in the town that I grew up in, which is something I never thought would happen. That's exciting. And what kind of experiences did you have in your childhood? You mentioned the sports um, that have maybe shaped you for your future. I had very supportive parents who never told me anything was off limits. I grew up saying that I wanted to be a writer, but then I think like every kid, I took like, you know, quite a few U-turns to get back to wanting to be a writer. There was a time I thought I was going to be an actor. Apparently, uh, my mom showed me some home videos recently where I said I was going to work at Disneyland and 4-H camp, which is hilarious because I was never into 4-H, and I don't remember ever really aspiring to work at Disney World or Disneyland, but apparently at 14, that was what my career path looked like. (laughs) And uh, my parents, my dad's from, well, he's from Birmingham, Alabama, and my mom was born in Tennessee. She grew up in Knoxville and then Nashville and then Tullahoma where I grew up. And I think she just wanted us to see a lot of the world as kids. So they were always taking us on adventures, the road trip across the US where we'd stop at national parks and historic sites and then end up on a dude ranch in Colorado. Or um, we, we did a lot of Florida trips as a kid because when you're in Tennessee, that's kind of the closest place to go to the ocean. So. I was always traveling and doing active things and being told that the sky was the limit. And I think 
that um, that's the, the greatest childhood anyone could have is not really being told that there are any uh, barriers or any limits that you're gonna hit and that you can you know, carve your own path. That's a beautiful gift your parents gave you. Yes, I very much appreciate my childhood and how I was raised and how uh, what great parents I was given. Yeah, that's amazing. So you mentioned that you had thought about being a writer, but when did you know like that's what you want to pursue? I think when I was in high school, I started really getting serious about it because there were activities where I could tap into that. I had some really amazing mentors and teachers from fifth grade on who really helped me kind of sharpen my writing craft. And then when I got to high school, there was a student publication section, um, a newspaper that I think came out every six weeks or so. We had to go in at 7 a.m. every day if you wanted to be newspaper staff. So it was a little bit of a commitment when you know school started at 8 or 8.15, and I'm not a morning person. But I started doing that maybe when I was 14 or 15, and my, uh, my newspaper teacher's name was Diane Sawyer. No. She was the... Yes, her name was Diane Sawyer. She's the biggest inspiration that I ever had. We stayed close until she passed away a few years ago, and she was my AP English teacher. She and another teacher, or I guess she was a principal at the time, Betty Hendrickson, took me and a bunch of AP English students to Italy in my senior year of high school, and she was just a really great influence on me, um, teaching me more about writing and reading and interpreting what I was reading. And so that's when I started working more on the news side of things. And then I did various internships in my teenage years at newspapers, uh, TV stations. I think I thought that I might be like a broadcast journalist, but I wound up majoring in print writing and um, you know going that route. So now I've kind of come full circle because I've done a lot of TV spots over the years and I realized I could never be a news journalist on the broadcast side because they have to get up so early. They have to be in like full hair and makeup at like 4 a.m. if you're yeah. a morning reporter. And I'm like, okay, I think I took the good route because I'm more of a night owl and I can just work on my writing throughout the day when it suits me as opposed to having to be camera ready, you know, every morning. So uh, I think I figured out, I think the right path for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I could not do what those morning journalists do, just knowing that they're up at 2 in the morning to be at work by, like you said, full hair and makeup by 4 a.m. No, I will. No, mm -mm. not at all. I remember I used to be a big fan of Howard Stern back when I had Sirius, and because he's such an incredible interviewer, and so I would listen to him do these like two-hour interviews with anyone from Lady Gaga to Elton John. And a lot of what he talked about in his opening segments was how he'd have to go to bed at 7 p.m. every night because for radio, I think he had to be in the studio somewhere between 2 and 3 a.m. And I was like, that is a commitment to your craft, knowing that you're going to forever have to give up kind of having a traditional social life um, because you really love what you do. So. I love what I do, but I don't know if I'm committed enough for 2 a.m. wake-ups every day. No, that Only would when be... I'm going to the airport. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that would be really, really rough. And you chose to go to UT Knoxville. What was your experience like there? I love UT Knoxville so much, and I did not originally end up there. 
because I thought I needed to go to private school in order to get a great job in magazines. So I started at Swanee University of the South, which was a great school. Um, I was a Wilkins scholar there, so I was there on a pretty substantial academic scholarship. And I did my two years there, and I really appreciate my time there. I made some lifelong friends, and it's such a beautiful campus. But I knew I wanted to be a journalist, and a school like Swanee trains you more to go to law school or go to some sort of graduate program. And in journalism, it's more about real-world experience as opposed to continuing to pursue additional degrees. And so I wanted to get started as soon as possible. So I did my two years at Swanee, which were basically all my prereqs. And then I transferred to UT and I did my two years of journalism school there. So I kind of got the best of both worlds, like a small private school and then a big public school. And by the time I got to UT, I was in all my major classes. So you know, 300, 400 levels. So they were smaller anyway, usually 15 to 20 students. And I just loved my time there. UT has a really great journalism program. And I had some professors who had, you know, went anywhere, ran the gamut of being AP reporters in the 50s and 60s to magazine editors at women's magazines in the 90s and, and aughts. And it was just a really great experience um, in terms of meeting really cool people in the field and also just learning a lot. And so I love UT, I will forever try to send other students who want to go into journalism there because I, I know now as an adult that you don't just have to have some name school in terms of like Columbia or Northwestern are really known for their journalism programs, but that's just not the right path for everyone. It's really expensive. School is not accessible to everyone. So if you are in state in Tennessee in particular and can tap into, you know, the Hope Scholarship and then, um, go to UT with it like I think that's a great route to go as well. That's incredible and how once you graduated how, did you go straight to New York like how did you end up in New York? I had gone on a networking trip my senior year to New York with my magazine professor and I was just really good at card collecting and meeting people and following up and I thought I had a job right out of college at the Knoxville News Sentinel, which is the paper of record there. And I wound up not getting it. There were two candidates and I was a finalist and I didn't get the job. And so kind of threw me for a loop because I thought I had my post-college plans mapped out and I was going to yeah. stay in Knoxville. And when that didn't happen, I just you know, quickly regrouped and I emailed everyone that I had met in New York and asked if there were any internship opportunities. And quite a few wrote me back and said that there were. And so I applied and I flew up on my spring break um, on my own dime to interview at all of these places. And I got a couple different offers. And so the most attractive one was for Newsweek in the international editions. And it was on Friday and Saturdays, like I had to work a shift of somewhere from like 10 a.m. to 8 p.m., sometimes to midnight, depending on uh, just the cycle of the magazine. But that left time the rest of the week to find another job. And so I wound up on the complete opposite end of the spectrum at a celebrity tabloid in New Jersey. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was not on, you know, my, my bulletin board, like life plan that I thought was going to happen. Um, but if I've learned anything working in journalism, it's like you just have to be fluid and go where the opportunities are. Yeah. And was it intimidating leaving Tennessee? Because Tennessee has a, 
even in the larger cities, a small city vibe, you were close with family, and then you take on a large city. Like, how, what was that transition like for you? It was definitely intimidating, but I had studied abroad in college, and I think that really helped me to learn how to think on the go and be open to meeting new people and not being afraid of change because otherwise I hadn't lived outside of Tennessee really until I moved to New York. I had spent summers my first couple years in college working on a ranch in Arizona and then when I was 20 I studied abroad in Scotland and then that was very helpful in just learning how to cope on my own because I was you know thousands of miles from my family and my friends. And I also traveled for about six weeks solo during that period of time all over Western Europe. And so I think all of that kind of shaped me being able to live in a big city on my own, despite the fact that I grew up in a small town in Tennessee. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. And how, do, how does it feel to go from college graduate to working for these big name publications? I think a, a little bit of imposter syndrome, like you're constantly wondering, oh, when are they going to figure out that I'm no more talented than the next <laughs> person? Oh, why am I in this position? Um, definitely gratitude for the ability to be able to move up to Tennessee. I mean, I didn't have anything holding me back. I had parents who were supportive. Um, you know, a lot of people don't have that kind of privilege. And so I fully acknowledge that being able to move to New York as a 22-year-old from Tennessee is a privilege, and, you know, it's not within reach for everyone, and so that I'm um, grateful for having been able to do that, and then from there following opportunities as they presented themselves. Wow. And what was life working for? So you said you were working for these two publications, you know, so you're working in a magazine office during the day, at night covering red carpet events, film festivals, and yet you still found time to write travel pieces in your free time. Did you hate sleep? <laughs> I don't know if I hated sleep or if sleep hated me. I've, I've never been a great sleeper. And I think that lent itself well to those first few years in New York because not only was I working you know, six days a week in-house somewhere, but then I started freelancing for other entertainment publications doing red carpet events at night. And then I took on a one day a week research position at Us Weekly. And that was from, um, oh gosh, Monday nights from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. every single week. So I would go from a full time, a full day in an office somewhere else to that, to getting up and then going to the office again. So it was a whole lot of um, chaos is the best way to describe my time in New York, but <laughs> it also allowed me to do a lot in a limited amount of time and meet, a, meet so many people and then eventually freelance go out on my own. So I basically was the yes girl who said yes to everything and just hoped that it would all kind of somehow dovetail into a nice career for me down the road. Yeah, which clearly it has. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have more from our guest, Kristen, as she shares her gratitude and the opportunities that have come to her and allowed her to pursue her goals. To stand out on social media and the internet, for a business to grow, 
you need branding images that help express who you are and what you represent. Being a driven business owner, you already know your audience needs to see your brand show up on a regular basis before your potential clients will trust you enough to work with you. If your current messaging is inconsistent and lacks cohesiveness, then your customers will scroll past instead of click and look more into what you have to offer. With a branding photo session with Girl Boss Photography, you can tell your story through images. Utilizing those images in your marketing and content strategy will enhance your appearance and help build a connection to your existing and potential clients. Girl Boss Photography loves working with small and medium-sized businesses to help them build a strong visual brand. By partnering with creative entrepreneurs and listening to their goals, Girl Boss Photography curates a branding session that will tell the story of who you are, what you do, and how you are there to help your clients. If you're wanting to grow your business, improve your online presence, contact Girl Boss Photography to find out more about your options with their branding packages. You can contact them by sending a message on Instagram at girl.boss.photography today. Have you been stagnant in the growth of your business? Would you like to see an increase to your revenue goals? Show your clients you are an authority in your industry by using visual storytelling with video, photography, and a content strategy package with Girl Boss Productions. A video series will help customers get to know you and allow you to build a relationship with people who want to support you. Using video on your website and in your marketing content, you can increase conversions by 80%. By enhancing your presence on social media and your website with updated and stylish photos, you can judge up your marketing content. Give it a little je ne sais quoi will grab the attention of your clients and they will take more time to read your post instead of scrolling past it. Utilizing video, photos, and a content strategy all in one package will promote your business to existing and potential clients and help develop a relationship with clients who want to support you, which results in increased sales. If you would like to know more about how you can enhance your business with video, contact girlbossproductions.com today. Welcome back to Journey to the Rise. We continue our conversation with Kristen. She talks about her husband and their partnership in renovating their properties and running a business together. Anyone who has worked with a partner or a spouse knows that this is not easy, but there is so much mutual respect between these two, they make it look easy. We also get into how they are empowering artists and towns with their nonprofit. And so you're living this amazing, and I mean, this is a really exciting life in New York. Like, this is a writer's dream to be able to graduate and do what you're doing. But yet you head to California. What made you decide to head west? Isn't it always a boy? <laughs> it was a boy for me. I was dating my now husband, Scott, and we were long distance. New York to California and he had a little bit more tying him to California than I did in New York and you know the reality of New York is not you're not living this sex in the city life in that you're in this fabulous apartment with this bottomless shoe closet but I lived in I think a 600 square foot studio with two roommates and convertible walls and we paid a mint for it too and I just you know that's only sustainable for so long and unless you're going you know, I don't know, a, a more lucrative career path like 
finance or investment banking. Uh, the likelihood of living in those small quarters forever in New York was pretty strong. And so for me, I, I knew it wasn't a forever plan. I never thought, hey, I'm moving to New York for good. I just thought, hey, I'm moving to New York as the first step and we'll see what happens next. And Scott asked me to move to California and I said, if we're together in a year, I'll move to California. And a year later, I made good on my plans and um, moved to California and I loved it. We had four years out there. And then he was the one who eventually said, hey, like, let's think about moving to Tennessee. And so I think everyone gets to a point in their life where um, you have like a, a goal in mind and you have to make those steps possible to reach that goal. For him, he always wanted to be a homeowner. And in California, I mean, you're looking at a million dollars for a fixer upper and that just wasn't ever gonna happen for us being writers unless we uh, you know, won the lottery or something. And so right. he said, let's consider moving to Tennessee where we can afford a starter home. And we moved to Tennessee for about a, a year, lived with my parents while we house hunted. Uh, we found this gorgeous Victorian from the 1800s that was basically something out of Scott's dream in San Francisco, like the kind of houses he worked on um, and in his career as a painting contractor. And we got it for the bargain price of $139,000, <laughs> which is bananas to me that you can buy this like piece of history for that in Tennessee. So yeah. it was just a really cool um, way that things happened and that we had wanted a home like this out in San Francisco. It was never really gonna happen. He said, hey, let's try Tennessee. At first I was like, oh, it almost felt like failure to me going back to the place where I was born because I had had these amazing chances to live in New York and Europe and California. But again, you know, just was like, okay, let's try it. And we did. And that's kind of how we got into home renovation was having that old house. And uh, we pretty much did all the work on it ourselves and Scott had worked in various contractor roles and so he was able to do all the work and then teach me how to do some of it. I'm definitely not a pro but I'm a I'm a good assistant when when I'm not being stubborn and when I actually listen to him. So. <laughs> yeah you two seem to work really well together on the projects that you've graciously shared in your stories and social media and you guys have done incredible things with that house and the one you're in now yeah we so we've done a couple homes together now which has been fun at times frustrating at times you know when um something doesn't go the way you want and or for example like this the victorian that we own we're about to have to paint it for a third time and not looking forward to that but it's all part of being a homeowner and you know committing to to restoring an old home like that but um, yeah we do work really well together and we work together in our day jobs now too so I think that's helped learn communication styles for when we're doing home renovation projects and, you know most people think it's crazy that we live together work together travel together and renovate homes together but I guess it, I guess it's a good thing we like each other yeah, it's clear that you definitely have a mutual respect for each other, and you two definitely have fun when you're around one another. You make that very clear, whether you're recognizing that or not. It's it's a beautiful relationship that you two do have. Thank you. And then we wound up starting a nonprofit as a result of kind of the restoration work we were doing in Manchester. Um, so 
Scott wanted to kind of inspire other people in our neighborhood at the time to do the same. So we went out and commissioned a mural. And as part of that, he offered to paint the building owner's building for free. And then that kind of created a snowball effect that um, not only were other people on the square in Manchester starting to care about their buildings once they saw how great this one building owner's building looked, but more people ask us to do more art. And so we wound up finding or founding a nonprofit called Do More Art, um, DMA for short. And now we've been doing that. We're coming up on our five year anniversary for the nonprofit. And I think we've done around 50 murals in maybe 20 communities across Tennessee. And wow. again, was never part of the plan. I'm not an artist. I appreciate <laughs> the visual arts, but I, um, I'm the president of that nonprofit and Scott and I run it together. And then we have another board member, Emily, and we have just really enjoyed doing that community improvement work. That's incredible. And how do you find your artists for the murals for these projects? A lot of the artists we find through our travels, you know, we seek out cities that have cool public art programs or have really great nonprofit footprints. And we try to meet with them if they're open to it. Um, we take notes of who's doing all this incredible work in the cities we're visiting. We follow them on Instagram. Um, I try to start a dialogue. If it's someone that whose work I really admire and I'd like to bring them into Tennessee, I never just want to like pop into their inboxes without any sort of context. So I try to, you know, follow them for a while first, engage with them over social media, um, support their artwork, and then if we have a project that's a good fit. Um, you know, reaching out and seeing if it's something they're interested in. I, th I think a lot of muralists get into this line of work because they want to be able to travel and kind of leave a mark in different parts of the world. And so when we're able to bring in artists from other states, it's really cool because a lot of them haven't been to Tennessee. So then I get to, uh, you know, have help them leave a mark on like my community or another community in Tennessee, and then also play tour guide and show what I love about my state. So it kind of taps in all the things I enjoy and we work with a lot of Tennessee artists though because we are a small like I say grassroots effort so we don't have these larger budgets that nonprofits who've been around 30 years have and so we do try to you know work with drivable artists when we can because then it just helps being it we we're able to compensate them a bit more when we're not having to pay for flights and rental cars and that kind of thing so um, but that's just been like anything. We've just built relationships over the last five years. And um, there's so many we enjoy working with that, like a couple of Nashville artists, like uh, Moby is one that anyone who's been to Nashville has seen his work because he's done some of the biggest walls in the state. Uh, he did the two huge Titans murals downtown and just so many iconic pieces of work in Nashville. And so every time he says yes to a project with us, it, I do a little dance inside because it's just really cool to be able to work with someone whose work you admire like that. And um, Kim Radford's another one in Nashville and Megan Lingerfelt in Knoxville. I mean, I could I could list <laughs> easily 20 or 30 artists who, you know, if I had a full-time nonprofit doing this work, I would try to figure out a way to employ them as my team. Yeah. So, but it's, it's, it's been really neat to learn a different side of, creative entrepreneurship through working with artists on this side of things. And what's the feedback you've been getting from like the people who own the buildings and those who come and see the work once it's, once it's done? 
think we'd ever gotten anything other than can we can you please continue to do more art and that's awesome. what um you know even sometimes when it's frustrating with just um how hard it is to make a piece come to fruition like the community feedback is just so overwhelmingly positive that it makes us want to continue to do this work even when we're a little bit down over um like things that people wouldn't think about but uh we've had building owners in the past who agreed to the philosophy of our nonprofit up front, which is that we encourage creative freedom and we're creating a place for artists to be their best selves. We're not telling them what to do. We're not saying, hey, come paint a pair of wings on the building. <laughs> um, and so we've had, <laughs> we've had business owners who have committed to the philosophy and then later down the road when we show them the, the rendering of the art, they're like, oh, okay, well, I don't, I, I was thinking more of like a catfish or something that speaks to Tennessee. And then we're just like banging our heads against the wall because it feels like sometimes, like, were you even listening to the conversations we had? Like you, you had to sign a contract saying you understood this. And so that can be the frustrating part of, of working with a, um, or working in a nonprofit world. Sure. And I'm sure anyone who's done this work has that type of experience no matter where you live. But I think it's especially in um, smaller towns that don't have a big art footprint it's hard to understand why that's important and why uh, encouraging creativity is so vital for uh, the youth and for the community. And so every time um, we do a piece, the public feedback we get is what kind of is we use as fuel for the next piece because there are a lot of frustrating parts in the front end, but then when we see how much people love it and go out to photograph the murals and like share them or you know leave comments um that's just what keeps us going that's awesome and do you ever run into issues with i mean you're painting outdoors so do you run into weather issues when you're trying to get this accomplished absolutely i mean tennessee we have what like 12 seasons every month of the year it seems like so it's very very unreliable and unpredictable and we try to build in a buffer for weather for every project we do. Um, Tennessee really only has reliable outdoor painting season from like April to October. Sometimes we're able to squeeze in, like we just did a mural project in March last week and luckily it was dry enough for the artist to do it, uh, but it was freezing. But Scott and I went and painted the building on the front end and it was that gorgeous like 78 degree day. So we had the best weather just outside in t-shirts. It was so nice to be outside. And then the artist gets there two days later and it's, you know, goes from 78 degrees to 30 but oh, he no. uh he's he was a rock star and he still got it done he hand mixed 58 different colors this is nathan brown out of what? chattanooga and painted this piece in madisonville he usually uses spray paint spray paint but for this piece uh, he was doing so many different colors it's just it's hard when you have that many colors to do spray paint because then you would need 58 different colors and then however many cans with each color so he hand mixed bucket paint for this one and it is very very cool that's amazing and i love that you're giving these artists an opportunity to have this outlet you're beautifying communities you're you're really bringing with your nonprofit people together yeah that was definitely the original intention and i think it's become even more of a community than we realized um you know for us it's very fulfilling because we become friends with the majority of artists who we hire and that wasn't I never set out to say hey I want to build a, a community of artists 
that I can call on at any hour of the day, and that's kind of happened just by um, just them being cool people, us being people open to, you know, new friendships. I feel like it's hard as, as an adult to make friends, especially if you don't have kids. Like, we don't have kids. A lot of people in our community do, and so a lot of our friendships as adults have become, um, you know, have been born out of our nonprofit work. And, and also, like, there's the factor that we're keeping artists employed, and I think that we would never, ever ask an artist to create for free. It is such a big part of our nonprofit is that there are a lot of mural festivals out there that only give a small stipend for paint and don't pay artists. And I understand there's a place for that type of um, project and you know, just depending on what it is, some muralists will want to participate in something like that. But for us, like, it's very important to us that, um, you know, we're compensating an artist for every piece of work that they do. And so we would never ask anyone to do a project for free. That's incredible. And it's, I, I agree, it's important to let people know that their skill, their talent, and their time has value. Yes, and you know, I've, I've preach that in my work as a writer and a photographer, um, just to stop devaluing artistic or creative fields in general. So I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't apply that in our nonprofit work, but I do see it all the time. I mean, it's it doesn't matter what kind of field you're in. Um, I feel like people are always opportunistic and trying to take advantage of creators because they think that, oh, well, you know, it didn't really cost you anything to to do this photo shoot with me. So you could do that for free, right? I'm like, it well, it cost me all the photography gear, all the lighting, all the memory cards, all the storage space, not to mention 20 plus years of working in this field that I was able to learn, you know, a command of lighting and composition and how to edit. So when people say something doesn't really cost someone to produce, that is categorically false because we all have experience and knowledge that we've built up over the years um, you know and then taking into account if you went to school for that craft all the investment that you put in on the front end so um, I don't you know it's a big sore point for me when I see any type of creator taken advantage of and we've tried to be almost like ambassadors for artists through our nonprofit work but also through our writing work and telling other towns and communities here's why it's important that you're paying these people for their work and not asking them to create a rendering that's unpaid that you may or may not use. Um, but it's, I don't know what the disconnect is. It's, I feel like I'm a broken record sometimes, like constantly telling city governments like, okay, this isn't cool. You can't ask someone to just create for free. They have, they have bills to pay, mouths to feed, that kind of thing. Exactly. They still have to make their car payment. They still have to put gas in their, in their car and equipment wears out you have to replace your laptop you have to replace your camera and you have always been an advocate for fair rates um, for quite some time and you voiced this in an article you wrote about how we should not work for free um, I mean you've touched on this a little bit but why do you feel that is so important I, I feel like the second that I work for free then I'm devaluing what the writer next to me does and I'm setting this I'm like lowering the bar and I've seen it happen in journalism like rates are half or less of less than half of what they were when I started in the early 2000s and it's because so many writers have willingly 
worked for next to nothing or for free because they think it's a privilege to be able to have their name in these publications. And the second that they do that, it creates this ripple effect where other publications realize, oh, well, we can lower our rates too. And then suddenly everyone's getting screwed as a result. So I think it's very important to kind of stick to your guns when it comes to that. Um, not to say like, I will ever, like I will never not do something for free. For example, I donate um, photo sessions to nonprofits. Um, there's a, an animal rescue in our area that we, we donate to a lot. And I did a um, silent auction item for them. I've done photo sessions for other nonprofits whose missions I believe in, but that's something I can decide to do versus they're not coming to me saying, uh, I want you to work for free. I'm offering that as kind of my contribution to the nonprofit. So I think everyone has to just decide like what what is it worth for you in the end? Um, and you know, like my internships, several internships I did were unpaid and then I had to work other jobs in, in retail to actually make my mortgage. And I've seen a lot of legislation get away from that where certain states aren't allowing companies to have interns that are unpaid. And I love seeing that because I, as I said earlier in the interview, I mean, I was able to go to New York because I didn't have debt, I didn't have a family to feed, that kind of thing. Um, but not everyone can just go and take an unpaid internship and then go work retail at night to pay their bills, you know? Like, a lot of people have student debt, have have children to feed, so I think it's just important that we pay everyone for their, their time and their skill set. Yeah, absolutely. And what kind of advice could you share with those who are getting started and building their writing career and they're tempted to work for free? I think setting some sort of guidelines for yourself is helpful. I mean, maybe you're not getting paid what you want in the beginning, but saying, okay, I'm going to do one or two assignments at this rate. And then once I've proven myself, I'm going to ask for a, a bump in pay or, um, try to negotiate some sort of deal that makes it more worth it for me financially, whether that's working with a publication or a tourism board or whatever it is uh, that can commit to hiring you for X amount of assignments a month or a year. Um, just knowing that the starting point when you get into journalism isn't, you shouldn't just coast along in that, uh, you know, in that pay range for forever, but everyone does have to start somewhere, right? So you're not gonna be able to just come right out the gate and be getting $2 a word assignments for, I don't know, the New Yorker. Like you are gonna to have to build yourself up and that does mean taking smaller assignments, um, sometimes assignments that don't pay as well as other ones, um, but also having a blog or something that is a product you control and that you can use as your own resume of sorts, I think is really smart, even in a time when, you know, people are spending all their spare hours on TikTok or Instagram or that type of thing. If you're, if you're a videographer, you should be spending time putting like together a YouTube product. If you're a writer, um, having a blog, I mean, all of these things are products that you are going to own essentially, um, and that you're going to be able to show to a potential employer or for someone who you maybe are trying to pitch an assignment to and they want to see clips of your other work, well, if you're just starting out, you may not have published clips. But if you have your own blog, you can publish anything you want on that and you know show that as like a work example for someone that you're trying to work for. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you had wrote um, on your blog, you wrote about, and this is a post from a while ago, about a content creator opportunity that Marriott International is offering. And you are not shy about diving into the details and saying why this was not optimal. A lot of people would not speak up and share the details about how this opportunity was not appealing. I was really impressed how you did not back down. Does the confidence to speak so freely come from your journalism background or where does that come from? Oh gosh, I don't know. I feel like I've always been a little bit righteous when it comes, when it comes <laughs> to people taking advantage of others. And I mean, it just kind of goes back to what I'm saying about artists and creators should be paid for their time. And I think that back when these contests on social media first started, they sounded really attractive until you dove into the fine print and realized like you're having to pay taxes on all of these gifts you're receiving. Um, there's a lot that comes along with it, a lot of strings attached. There is no such thing as a free lunch. So you're you're getting this, you know, gift package if you are the person who wins these sweepstakes. But then in the fine print it says that they own everything you create your image, your likeness, you're basically signing away the rights to your creative property. And I just don't think that's ever okay. I think for someone who doesn't read the fine print, 30 days of free stays sounds like a really cool deal. Uh, but then if you broke down what that same company would pay an agency to create that content, you're actually getting screwed in that deal. So if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And uh, I think people are getting a lot wiser to that fact because there are so many who have gone from office jobs to some sort of position that has them working online so they're a little bit more um, cognizant of the fact that there are a lot of people out there trying to take advantage of people creating free content so yeah and you've talked about um you know, starting your own blog when did you decide to start your blog and what was the inspiration to start it started my blog in 2007, so quite a few years ago. I was working at the time at a Condé Nast magazine that no, that, was, that folded since, and it was a fashion publication. I was not interested in the content, but it was a job, and it was very busy two weeks of the month, and two weeks of the month, we were just kind of sitting around waiting for uh, copy to come in to be edited, and so I had a lot of downtime, and so back then there was this big community that was just on the rise called Blog Her, and I think it still exists, it's just there's so many other communities that I've kind of since gotten away from that one, but it was a really great way to meet other people online, kind of back in the early days of community forums. So I started my own blog because I was reading a lot of other people's through Blog Her, and then um, started interacting with other people who had blogs. And when I moved to California, my entire friend group was people that I knew just through my blog. So we had a little, we, like a, a, what do we call it? Like the bloggerati um, <laughs> of just people who all had just like lifestyles blogs. And my blog kind of started out being more lifestyles in nature. And then eventually I honed in on doing travel and food, but then things have changed so much over the years and I've gone more to a general lifestyles blog again. I mean, definitely travel is the main focus, but I write about home renovation. I write about career topics. Um, 
two of my most popular posts of all time are how to build a hot tub out of a stock tank and how to build a dog ramp for $30. And those were both pandemic projects Scott and I just did in our living room because, you know, we weren't going anywhere and he is worse than I am about not being able to sit still. So he's constantly wanting to create things. And so, um, yeah, our blog is like kind of a mishmash of topics across the board. Basically anything I find interesting, I, I find kind of like open season for writing about. Nice. And anyone who visits your website or social media, it is very obvious of your love and appreciation for Taylor Swift. What was it like to be yeah. able to interview her? So I, for years, interviewed celebrities for red carpet events or for magazine profiles. And Taylor was kind of my holy grail, my unreachable. And I yeah. did a two year stint at a magazine in Nashville called Nashville Lifestyles. And I was the managing editor, so I kind of could kind of the top position there. And I definitely used that to my advantage of meeting people that I really wanted to meet. Um, I interviewed for cover stories, uh, Steven Tyler, Casey Musgraves, a little big town, just all sorts of really talented musicians and actors. And one who I was able to interview and never ever thought I would get was Taylor. And that was through um, her publicist, who still remains her publicist today, who I knew kind of casually through having worked red carpet events. And I, the, the bummer was that it was supposed to have been an in-person interview. And then she was out West shooting her, uh, like a Rolling Stone cover and some of her cover art for the album at the time. So like the day before they had to change it to a phone interview, but that was probably better because I was so nervous about that phone interview. I'm not sure I could have done it in person. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was, I don't get nervous or rattled easily, but that was an all day, like, uh, like just waiting for her to call. But she was very cool and very humble and gracious. This was when 1989 came out. So it was like a week before the album came out. And so we did a cover story on that and kind of her rise from country and Nashville to like, you know, pop and New York. And um, yeah, I mean, she was great. I'm like, as much as I admire her as an artist, I've always been equally impressed by her marketing savvy. I mean, every time she does a new album, it's pretty much an entire years long marketing campaign that no one realized was happening until the album comes out. And then you realize all the things she used to reference that album like years before. And I just do not understand what it would be like to live in her mind. It's like all these like spider webs that crisscross and I don't know how she keeps it all straight. But um, yeah, she was she was very cool and down to earth and I was trying to like be the same, but uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely was a highlight of my interview part of my life. Yeah, she talks about notebooks and writing things down a lot. So I can only imagine how like her stacks of paper but yeah I would love to get into that mind like people can say what they want she's very brilliant and very talented I always think her minds must be like you know when you're watching one of those shows with like the CIA or you know, like the homeland and they've got like all the different um pieces of paper on the wall and all the like lines trying to link all these different stories I feel like her mind is like just the ultimate version yeah. of that yeah she probably has like a secret room where that stuff is up on a wall and you have to have like 
handprint yes. to be able to get in or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like scan your retina. Exactly. I'm sure, like she's she's like as secretive as the CIA, so I'm sure she has something like that built in her, you know, her honeycomb of palms. And in your article, Mingling with Mermaids, Diving into Grenada's Culture, you talk about the underwater sculpture park and how you wanted to dive with them. And this is where, I, again, I go back to how resourceful you are. You couldn't find a dive boat that worked with your availability, but you found something better. Like, how did you get out there and what was that experience like for you? Oh, yeah. I There's a, uh, a lot of times in my travels where... You know, we just kind of had to make things work um, by talking to people, uh, finding local tour guides who were willing to take us out on their boat. I think that was the case in Grenada. We were traveling with friends and, and my mom, and uh, we found, uh, we stayed with this lovely woman, Susan. She owned a rental house there, and she just, I mean, anything we wanted to do, she found someone on the island to wow. make it happen for us. And I, I think that... Um, we just don't look at anything as off limits, you know? And so sometimes that is, you know, finding someone when you're in St. Petersburg, Russia, and asking them or seeing that they have a boat and saying, how much would it cost for you to take me and my friends out? Which is totally something we did in Russia with my friend, Nicole. Um, she and Scott and our board member, Emily, and I were just like walking down the river. <laughs> and we had a couple hours until we had to be back on our ship. This was when I worked on Semester at Sea. And she just walked up to this guy with the boat and was like, hey, can we pay you to take us out with some champagne and like give us like a, you know, midnight sun tour of St. Petersburg? And, and sure enough, it happened. So. Wow. <laughs> and do you feel... I think just being able to be bold. Right. Is, yeah. It's, it's a skill that will serve you well in any kind of travel role or just, you know, as a traveler in general. And people are always so friendly. Like when you do approach them and and willing to talk with them, it's amazing how friendly people really are. Absolutely, I feel like you know, being being from the south, we're used to like never meeting a stranger, and I feel like that is like a very helpful kind of personality to have when you travel. Yeah. And do you feel because of your travel experience, you are more resourceful in finding ways to make what seems impossible into possible? Yes, I think when you've dealt with, um, you know, airline schedules and train schedules and being stranded here and there, like you really learn how to think on the fly and um, be a little bit more laid back when it comes to things going wrong. Um, because you know you've had experience doing that in the past and realize everything does work out even when it, if it's stressful in the moment but yeah I think that um, learning to be resourceful is one of the biggest things that like travel has helped me with and also the red carpet experience oddly enough because I had to learn kind of how to think on my feet and to problem solve a situation when you're in like an awkward celebrity interview or you're not getting kind of the information that you need for the assignment and so in a in a very weird roundabout way my experience working at entertainment magazines has kind of helped me uh, on the travel side as well that's incredible and speaking of stressful situations 
you shared a travel nightmare for people. You were 12 hours before leaving for a trip and your Airbnb host canceled. How in the world did you navigate that and what advice do you have for people who run into that kind of an issue? Yes, so last summer we were going to New York with Scott's family for a, an event that the um, Veterans Affairs Office was putting on to honor Scott's great-great-great-grandfather, I think it was, who had served in the Union Army. Wow. And so they were designating his grave in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And so we had our 18-year-old niece and then Scott's aunt flying in from California. His parents were supposed to have come as well, but due to like health problems, they had to cancel last minute. But we had booked a six bedroom house for the six of us in Brooklyn, like six months prior, paid to it or paid for it, everything. Um, we booked it through Airbnb. And then the night before we were leaving at like 5 a.m. And then the night before the host canceled and they didn't give me a reason, they just canceled. And I got an alert from Airbnb that said, your lodging is canceled. Oh, well, I don't no. know if you've ever tried to travel to New York with a group in general. It's already hard enough to find affordable lodging when, you, when you're looking six months out. But this was the height of summer, very tourist season there over oh, a weekend. No. So I get online and there's pretty much nothing available. And what was really frustrating about that is I'm also an Airbnb super host and Airbnb used to be great on the customer service side and now they've just grown to be like an Expedia or just a big company that has no care for its customers. So I had to call and get online and message. Like I was using like three different ways of communicating with them at once, just trying to get through to someone. And eventually, you know, they said, oh, well, there's this one place available in Manhattan. And it was like a one bedroom apartment when we booked oh, a six no. And I said, that's not going to fly. And I said, I see this one other place. And it was like three bedrooms, but it was massive. And I said, that would work. And they're like, oh, well, I'm sorry. That one's way more expensive than you originally paid. And I said, well, that's not really my problem, is it? Because I'm not the one who canceled. <laughs> and eventually they said, they, they gave me the a voucher to book that one. Um, but they that was not their immediate inclination to help out. So I just kind of had to stay on them until... Um, you know, they finally came up with a resolution that met my needs. And the, the frustrating thing with any kind of customer service now is I feel like it's so much time put on the consumer when something goes wrong and it shouldn't be like that, but that's the reality. And, you know, if, so if you're canceled on by Airbnb or VRBO or any type of uh, travel service that works in lodging, just know that you're going to have to advocate for yourself and, Calling is usually the quick, quickest way to get through, but then I kept waiting for them to call back and they weren't. So then I simultaneously got on Airbnb's messaging service. So then I had kind of a track record of everything that had happened if I needed to like continue to escalate it. I also went on Twitter at the same time and I you know, kept asking to speak to the manager and the manager's manager and that kind of thing. And eventually it got resolved, but it, I mean, Trying to get customer service in 2023 is tough. Yeah. So lesson to this is if you run into this issue, channel Kristen's chutzpah and don't give up. Yes. 
don't give up. Go all the different routes. Know that you are owed what you original what you paid for, and that um, you know consumers do have rights. Like Airbnb doesn't want you to think that they just want to. Oh well, you, you know we're just going to refund you your original amount. Well, a lot of good that does me when I have a trip tomorrow and my original <laughs> amount isn't good for anything right now. Right. So. <laughs> and on a more fun side, you have a very fun series with your dog, Ella, on your website. How how long has she been your little travel companion? Well, Ella is turning 13 soon. Oh, so wow. she has been on the road with us since she was a puppy. So we moved to Tennessee when she was one. And that year before we moved, we pretty much traveled full time uh, all over the West and then we moved across country. And so by the time she was one, I think she'd been to like 22 states or something <laughs> crazy like that. So wow. she she now doesn't travel as much with us only because we're um, traveling by plane a lot. Sometimes though, she did go back to California with us last year because we were camping. So she, she went back out to her roots and we uh, went in the, the RV for a week. Um, she's a good little traveler. I think we started with her early. So she's good at like, you know, car travel or plane travel. She does not love going to like restaurants and sitting under the chair. Like she wants to like talk to everyone. So yeah. that's kind of why we've, we've left her at home a little bit more because it's just sometimes easier to not worry about her leaving her in a hotel or an Airbnb and just like leaving <laughs> her at home with her grandmother, my mom. So yeah. So it sounds like she kind of goes with the flow or, but it sounds like, like she also wants to be present and a little sassy. She's, she's super sassy. She loves to hike, though. So, like, if we're doing, like, a waterfall hike nearby, because Tennessee, there's, you know, hundreds of waterfalls. Like, we'll take her. I mean, she'll not think twice of doing, like, a three- or four-mile hike. And, you know, she's a little six-pound dog. Most people think of, like, little dogs as indoor dogs. But she would be outside in the woods all day, every day, if we let her. That's awesome. And you take her paddle boarding with you, don't you? We do. Yeah, we both have paddle boards. We live about five minutes from a lake, and when we go paddle boarding, we pretty much always take her. We just, like, pull it up to the shore, and then she hops right on. And of course, we have her in a life vest because she's, you know, she's a Maltese. She's They're not the best swimmers, so <laughs> she does not want to get in the water, but she wants to sit out on the front of my paddle board, and she's got, like, her, her mullet flapping in the wind. We always say she looks like she's, like, George Washington boarding the Potomac or something out in the front of <laughs> his boat <laughs> so it's fun though and uh we've got three cats now as well who are rescues that we've just collected over the years and i think they wish that they could go but i've not uh, not figured out how to travel with cats just yet yeah they're a little bit more high maintenance because you need a harness <laughs> or a backpack <laughs> yep i know i see people who like take those little backpacks with the little like Lobe windows on them, and I'm like, my cats would not be chill just hanging out in that. So, yeah, no, they would be like, let me out. Yes, <laughs> now your website and blog it covers so much information from driving to road trips to bourbon to traveling the south, like food and drink. Like, where does the passion come from to create such a variety of travel information and articles? think that so my blog camels and chocolate was originally conceptualized as just kind of an everyday blog uh, detailing just my life it was more 
like a personal blog because the year was 2007 and everyone was writing personal blogs. And then over time, I just realized I wanted to create more service-based pieces people could use. So it's still written first person, but I've been trying to, you know, go more the route of giving people itineraries because I know for me, like when I'm going somewhere new, I kind of want the bullet points. So it's been hard balancing, still wanting it to be like a personal blog, but then also give people the highlights and like information that they could actually use. Um, so I think that's where my journalism background comes into is uh, being able to create content like that. Um, I like having a blog though, because I, there's no limit to the word count or number of photos that I can upload. Whereas with, um, you know, like when I'm writing a magazine story, I'm very limited by word count. And so my blog, I mean, a lot of my posts are thousands of words long, which SEO experts would say is not great, but I kind of don't care because it's my, my product and I can kind of do it how I want. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people who enjoy more long form content, especially if they want everything to do in Hawaii in one week and one blog post, they're not gonna be put off by the fact that it's a little bit longer than a magazine article would be. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and what you craft is really very well written and your photography is beautiful. You make it an easy read, like you could have a 5,000 word article and I know when I've been on your website, I don't realize I've read that long because you just really captivate and you keep it flowing very well. Well, thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> and at one point you state, I'm not a backpacker, I'm not a nomad, I'm not someone who just up and quit a job, abandoning, abandoning her old lifestyle to travel the world without pause. I'm just a girl who has managed to balance a career with a family life, home ownership, and jet setting. And I want to show you that you can do the same. What advice can you share with those who desire that life as they pursue it? You know, the travel that I did at the beginning, um, when I was going the more backpacker route, um, was just taking any time off that I had and letting kind of my budget dictate where I went. Um, but a lot of that was just signing up for cheap flight deals. Like I remember one year I went to Germany when I was 23 to visit friends and I was staying with them. So really just my cost was my flight. Well, I was flying from New York to Germany and I realized I could fly Iceland Air and stop over for a week. And so I, uh, use their stopover function, which a whole lot of airlines offer and people don't necessarily know about. I was looking at Qatar Air to fly to Asia next year and they also offered the ability to stop over for a few days. Wow. And so I think, um, you know, if you're open to going different places and not going places in the high season, like Europe in the summer is ridiculously expensive, right? So maybe if you really want to go to Italy, look at going in October or November when the crowds have waned and prices are lower. Um, you know, I'm always, I've always been like an off-season or shoulder-season traveler to begin with, but uh, when I was starting out in my career, I was traveling any, I was using all of my time off because I think not enough Americans do that. I know plenty of people who have five weeks off a year and maybe use two of it, two of those yeah. weeks. So I think using that time off that you're given, um, if you're traveling on a budget, uh, figuring out what your budget is and then deciding on the destination based on that budget as opposed to trying to do it the other way and saying, I really want to go to Italy, but I only have $1,000 to do so. Well, maybe that's not the best place for you because just getting there from the U.S. is going to cost that. 
So maybe you look at going to Central America where your dollar can go further. Um, and I, you know, I've never, I, I love a good indulgence and I love a nice resort, but I mean, I stay in Airbnbs and vacation rentals far more often than I do hotels. And it's just basically working within whatever my budget is at the time. And I never did um, really think that the, the, the backpacker model of the people quitting their jobs and traveling the world full time was the best advice because your, your average American isn't going to be able to do that. They have commitments or they have things that are tying them down. And so that's why I wanted to be very clear up front with my blog, that was not what you were coming to my blog for, figuring out how to quit your job but figuring out how to use the time that you do have mindfully if traveling is a priority for you and giving you options of other places maybe you didn't think about. I mean, some of my favorite places over the years have been like Cincinnati, Ohio, and Oklahoma City, like places that people maybe aren't thinking about because instead if they're going to a city, they're going to Austin or Portland or San Francisco. But I mean, I love some of the mid-sized to smaller cities just as much as I love the big ones. I mean, most recently we were in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and I was just blown away that it's two hours from me and I hadn't been until my late 30s, and then it was just such a fun place to go, and I already want to go back with my niece and nephew. Um, but that's just not a place that you read about as much as you read about, like, going to New York City or going to San Francisco. So I think we've always focused a little bit more on covering all the in-between destinations that – aren't the major ones people think of when they're thinking of vacation spots. Yeah, absolutely. And on your website, Camels and Chocolate, where did the name come from? Like, do you have a dream of riding a camel? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did ride a camel, and that's where the name came from, because there's <laughs> nice. this photo of me on a camel that went, well, whatever the equivalent of viral was before the internet, but uh, I won a study abroad photography contest, and the fine print always says, you know, we can use this photo however we like. So that photo wound up uh, circulating in UT for years, possibly still is. It was on the study abroad cover, it was on the calendar, it was in the Torchbearer, which is the alumni magazine. It just kept coming back. And so people would just see me and be like, oh, you're, you're that camel girl that we saw on the UT uh, cover. And I was like, oh gosh. And, and meanwhile, my mom's like, ah, what, like, could you have at least brush your hair if this photo was going to be everywhere? <laughs> Typical mom, right? Um, I'd course. been camping in the Sahara Desert on some little, like, three-day tour when I was in college. So, like, my priority, like, I didn't have a mirror. My priority was not how I was going to look in this photo that would haunt me for 20 years. <laughs> so that was kind of the, the basis of the name. Was back then, I was just trying to think of, like, two things that were, were fun and weren't, like, everyone was naming their site, like, go backpacking or go abroad or whatnot, and I just wanted something that sounded a little bit less stuffy, and I thought, like, I'm such a chocoholic, I probably have something chocolate every day, and I love traveling and food, and so it just kind of felt like symbols of, like, indulgence and adventure, and so that's kind of, at least now, how I tell it. <laughs> well, it's a fantastic name. And with your writing, writing is really hard. And when I talk to writers, they will often speak about imposter syndrome, negative voices, overcoming confidence. Have you ever faced that kind of challenge? And if so, how, how do you overcome it? I feel like I still face that every day. I don't, I feel no one's ever going to think uh, that 
unless you have like extreme uh, narcissistic personality disorder. I don't think anyone's ever, ever thinks that they are as good as someone else may see them. So I think acknowledging that we're all going through that is helpful. I mean, I read writers who I admire and then I'll see them post about, I can't believe I got this opportunity. I'm having major imposter syndrome. And meanwhile, I'm thinking that they're great and they're feeling the same way that I feel when I get a really cool assignment. So I think it's helpful to know we're all kind of going through the same mental gymnastics. And um, I mean, have I, I think building confidence is always gonna be the trickiest thing in any career, but especially in journalism where it's really hard to get your foot in the door. And then, you know, we're seeing more and more layoffs now as people talked about a recession and that can be hard too. So I think just realizing that um, I, I consider any response that I get from someone, even if it's a no, I consider that success because at least they're getting back to me. Whereas when I was first starting my career in pitching publications, I would just get crickets in response. And so now I'm like, okay, a no is at least an acknowledgement. And then I have that kind of dialogue with this person. So then I can go back to them and say, okay, I know this didn't work, but how about this idea? And then it's just kind of taking that and running with it. My mom told me at one point, and when she graduated from Vanderbilt, she um, wallpapered her tiny little kitchen with rejection letters. And I always think about that, that that's really helpful to have some point of reference for where you started and where you are now. So maybe that's not having 100% success rate in pitching stories because no one has that. But maybe that's saying, okay, two years ago, I was only even getting 20% of people writing me back and now that's grown to 30 or 40% or whatnot. Um, there's a couple of writers like Lola Akinmaid who's Swedish and she keeps a blog um, of, of very, very detailed records of her success rate for every pitch, how much um, work it generated for her. Uh, and she does like year over year pie charts at the beginning of every calendar year. And I think it's just really cool to be able to have that kind of visual journey. So I highly recommend to everyone do that just for your own record keeping is so you can have like, you know, a reference point. Yeah, absolutely. And it is nice to know that everyone is going through that, even if you are, because I think with writers, you're isolated. You can't write, you know, in a group of people. And so those voices in your head, it's easy for them to, to try and seep in and, and take over. I think finding people who maybe as your like writer support group is helpful and that can be through a local you know writing nonprofit like uh, Nashville has the porch or that can be online groups uh, that you know there's a lot of like great binders they call them like binders of writers binders of travel writers binders of food writers and I found you know I made a lot of friends through just being parts of online communities like that and then just kind of creating your own little tribe from there, I think is really helpful. I definitely have a handful of writers and photographers that I could text at any point in, in the day and say, hey, um, I got approached about this assignment. Did you like working with this editor? Would you recommend like taking this rate or is there room for negotiation? I think not gatekeeping and being open to sharing that kind of information is really helpful for everyone. and creates like a, a healthier writing community. And so I've kind of always had that mindset, but I've definitely found my friends in the industry who also feel that way. And that's just kind of create 
a really nice like community in what you explained as like an isolated field because it definitely feels like that sometimes when you only see your computer all day long and no coworkers. Yeah, and keeping that dialogue open in the line of communication, it's so much better because I believe we stand stronger together than we do apart. In today's society, with so much emphasis being put on video, do you think there's still a place for writers to have a successful career? Yes, I think that, I mean, writing is crucial in, no, in, any, in any career that you go into. Being able to communicate, being able to convey a message um, is used in every every industry so even if you are a writer who decides to take that skill set and use it to be in i don't know corporate pr for healthcare or um working in some service related field or working in the nonprofit sector i think writing is always um, a useful skill set to have and you know video editors also have to know how to write because they have to create that storyboard and tell a story in a different way. So I think that um, we're just using writing and a whole lot of other applications other than just, you know, straight up journalism like we used to consume via newspapers and uh, magazines. And I just think being able to write, eventually like the cream will rise to the top because there are just so many content creators out there um, so if you really are passionate about getting into this industry, um, just focusing on being a stronger writer and not just giving into the trends, um, which can be hard, you know, especially with social media, there's something new every single week, it seems. And I don't even really spend a lot of time on like TikTok or some of these other platforms. I've just stuck to keeping my blog and like I love Instagram because I feel like I communicate with people there. And for me, it's been helpful to realize I don't have to be everywhere at all the time. And it's just like figuring out where my time is most valuable. And that's gonna be different for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And what kind of goals do you have for yourself for this year? Mm, that's a good question. I'm not like a resolution setter. Um, I think every year I just try to, um, you know, I'm my own boss and so it's hard to measure success but I try to look at my projects and continue to um, set aside you know build more wealth for my future in terms of being able to set aside retirement because I have to pay for all that on my own because I don't have an employer so it's continuing to like increase my own salary every year so I can set that aside for later and that has been really helpful having like a financial planner who make sure she that happens to be my cousin but make sure that every year i contribute to my SEP and my roth ira and that kind of thing so for me it, what that looks like is every year okay if i can make 10 percent more than i did last year that's more money that i can put into my retirement account um, and thinking about those things that don't seem as sexy as going on fun trips but um, i also don't want to be 75 and having to still work all day every day. So um, for us, that's also been investing in, in real estate, like our Victorian house that we still own and rent out. Um, and, you know, 
uh, taking care of the spaces that we do have. So hopefully someday that'll be part of our retirement plan as well. Yeah, you have to plan for those things because if you don't later and like when you're in your 20s and 30s, it's like, I have time, it's no big deal. It's like, no, you need to be taking time to be thinking about that because next thing you know, you're 50, 60 and all of a sudden you're like, I have run out of time to, to be prepared. And that can be really scary. Yeah. I look at my, my husband's parents both worked for the state of California and so they were able to retire early and they, you know, they have state pensions, which have been really comfortable for them in their, you know, senior years. But then, um, you know, I know plenty of people who are writers who are still in their 70s or 80s and having to uh, to work for this affiliate income or blog revenue. And I just, I don't want to have to rely on that. I want to have made smart financial decisions in my younger decades to benefit <laughs> me later on. And I'm a, a CPA daughter, so I feel like that's always kind of been instilled in me is to, to think about those things. And so... Um, for anyone, even if you're 18, 19 and in your first job, if you can figure out how to just put start at like $50 a month and put it into like a, you know, a, a savings account that you can contribute to some sort of retirement plan, I think is really smart. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's not sexy, <laughs> but you have to no, do it. No, not at all. <laughs> no, I know. All these adulting things aren't sexy, but... Um, no. You'll be glad later that you took the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if someone wants to find more information about you, the murals, read your blogs, where can they find you? So my blog is Camels and Chocolate, so you can just search that. I should be the only one that pops up. Um, on social media, I'm Lunatic at Large, which is just a play on my name, Kristen Luna. And then the nonprofit's called DMA Events. So if you search DMA Events on the internet or on Facebook, we'll pop up and you can see all the murals we've done and have a little handy map if you want to drive and visit them all in person. That'd be really cool. And I'll get all the information posted in the show notes. I know you are super, super busy with your whirlwind of projects and travel, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, anytime. I love talking to fellow creatives. <laughs> That's it with Kristen. I do love how she puts an emphasis on being smart professionally and financially as these decisions really can set yourself up for success in retirement. And she's right. Adulting is not always sexy, but it is important as we pursue our goals to maintain that level of responsibility for our future. In our next episode, we talk with Nick Baumgartner, a talented photographer, and he talks a little bit to us about the importance of relationships. I think relationships are kind of like the most important thing in life in general, right? And then in photography, when you're trying to sell something especially, uh, I think everyone has a specific unique relationship when it comes to food. Uh, food is a major part of culture. Like as culture we eat around a table together, and that's a uniquely human experience of eating in a group together and bonding over food. Uh, I don't think we can take you know, food producers, food manufacturers, growers out of that picture. I think they're an important part of it. Uh, we all need to know kind of like where our food comes from, how it gets to our table, and that's important. Uh, you know, we all think about, you know, one of the things I always think about is the first time I had an ice cream cone at the park, and I was looking at that ice cream cone 
and the ice cream fell off, right? You feel that devastation. But you also remember, you know, the first time as an adult, you go to the baseball field, you get an ice-cold beer, and you watch the Cubs, right? That's also a very powerful relational moment that everyone has. Uh, so I think, you know, portraying that with food photography and advertising in general is really important. It's bringing that human element into it. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Journey to the Rise. Please do follow us on your podcast app so you have the latest episode downloaded. If you want to follow us on Instagram, our account is at Journey to the Rise Podcast. This episode was researched, produced, and edited by Girl Boss Productions. And remember to be kind to yourself. When you are kind to you, it is easier to be kind to others. I'm Lucretia, and you've been listening to Journey to the Rise.